Welcome to Prairie Design Lab. Today, in episode 27 called Indigenize, we take a deep look at what it means to indigenize the curriculum of the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Architecture. Prairie Design Lab is created with the help of the graduates, students, faculty, and allies of the U of M, home of the most experienced, creative, and indigenously attuned architecture faculty in Canada. In the most recent census in 2016, Indigenous people made up 4.9% of the total population in Canada. In Winnipeg, which has the largest Indigenous population of any city in the country, the percentage was 12.1%. For more than 10 years, Indigenous achievement has been defined as a strategic priority of the University of Manitoba. At U of M, a new interdisciplinary Indigenous design studio was launched in the fall of 2015. It was co-taught by Marcella Eaton, Associate Professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture, and by Ralph Stern, the former Dean of the Faculty of Architecture. Marcella Eaton and Ralph Stern are here now. Also with us is Evan Trombley, who graduated from the University of Manitoba in February with a Master of Landscape Architecture. He identifies as Métis. Hello, Marcella. Can I call you Marcy since everybody else does? Sure can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hello, Ralph Stern. Hi. And hello, Evan Trombley. How are you? I'm very good. Yourself? I'm pretty well. Thank you. Can I begin by asking the professors in the room, what does it mean to indigenize your curriculum? To me, to indigenize the curriculum simply means to ensure that there's content within whatever it is I'm teaching that actually has reference and discussion about indigenous culture in Canada, in the places that we're studying, virtually anything that we're studying. As an example, I teach a course called Philosophy, Ethics, and Aesthetics, and I use Adele Perry's book, Aqueducts, in that course as one of the required texts. And reading through that, the students are always shocked to realize that they didn't know that Winnipeg's water comes from Shoal Lake and that Indigenous people have been very badly harmed by this. And so, I mean, you might think of course like philosophy, ethics, aesthetics, how would you think about indigenizing the curriculum? It's so easy in any course that one is teaching at the university to weave in different understandings of the indigenous cultures across Canada. So I think that it's really very important and I've been trying to do it before the university set it as a strategic priority. And Ralph Stern, what did it mean to you to indigenize your curriculum? One way potentially of maybe reframing that question is, is it a question of indigenizing the curriculum or is it a question of decolonizing the curriculum? There are kind of different consequences to thinking of, you know, along those different lines. One of the questions that has always been a concern to myself is how do you and let's just use the term decolonize, how do you decolonize a curriculum in a professional faculty that is by its very nature disciplinary, by its very nature in terms of giving professional degrees that are accredited degrees, inscribes a disciplinarity, and in that regard, perhaps on the one hand, a specialization of knowledge, but on the other hand, a fragmentation of knowledge, which perhaps runs fundamentally counter to an indigenous worldview, which is a holistic worldview. It's not a disciplinary, it's not a fragmentary worldview. 
obviously it's important to bring in different perspectives, to bring in different histories, to bring in different voices. But I think it's underlying all of this is a question of how do you bring in a different worldview? For me, within the faculty, because your question is also specifically to the faculty of architecture, I guess, and our roles within that faculty, the real hope in that faculty lies in the environmental design program, because the environmental design program, at least conceptually, a holistic program where those disciplinary distinctions have not yet necessarily been made. And so I think the goal of the environmental design program historically was always a holistic goal. It was always an environmentally based goal. It was always a sustainability based goal. And I recall once talking to Ovid Mercredi about the program and how wonderful the program is, or at least how wonderfully it's been conceived of. And Ovid sort of looked at me and said, well, you guys are finally catching up. And I thought maybe that summarized it, right? I mean, that part of the question is how do you break across disciplinary boundaries in order to incorporate a holistic way of thinking? And that, at least from my perspective, is one of the underlying tenets, the underlying worldview of indigeneity. Evan Tremblay, what did being indigenous mean to you growing up? I think that that's a thing that retroactively I've come to understand what it meant to me growing up differently, and particularly after my design education. I think belonging to a place, not just living in a place, but dwelling in it at a scale that's beyond yourself, being aware that you have a history and a relationship to the place, and that you're shaped and influenced and acting in tandem with the place. Coming to understand your Indigenous nature retroactively, what does that mean? Like, was there something else that began to turn you toward it or to make you think differently about it? Yeah, I think that, especially when I was younger, I think this is perhaps especially for a lot of Métis people, the situation. Um, When I was younger, I understood it more as an ethnicity. I knew that I was Métis. But as I grew older, in particular, as I had a chance to explore that, through my design education, I began to understand it more as a point of view, as a worldview. And I think that being able to see a difference in how I felt about things or about how I understood things, that if that was different from how other people did, kind of beginning to question what the source of that was. And I think in particular studio setting, because it is such a personal thing to work through a design, I think that was really a catalyst for me. When we talked the other day, you talked about making a distinction between Métis ethnicity and Métis identity. What's the difference between those two things? Again, sort of like what Ralph was saying for an Indigenous worldview being holistic. In terms of a Métis ethnicity or any ethnicity, it's something that is essentially a label. But I think that beyond that, there's sort of growing into that label, understanding that the label isn't just a label that Métis or career being Indigenous to a particular place is different from place to place and coming to understand what that is and really how that governs your life and interacts with your decisions. Evan, in what way did the university's commitment to Indigenous achievement as what they called a strategic priority, how did that affect your studies there? So I took a fair while to do both my degrees um, and also had a few years off in between. I was basically at the university for about 
10 years. So I started before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It is really notable, in particular, as I went to my master's degree, the commitments that the university was making in terms of financial commitments, in terms of scholarships in form, in terms of supporting student work. I think also an aspect of that is both for non-Indigenous people, but perhaps particularly for Indigenous people, there is a real incentive to use that viewpoint as a academic tool. For instance, I received a scholarship, the uh, Master's Award for Indigenous Students, which is essentially based on the, one might say, the level of, as the university sees it, Indigenous value in the research that you're proposing. So there's a real incentive to begin to focus on that. You were awarded in the course of your time with the university six scholarships. You were clearly a high-achieving student, but those scholarships were related to your indigeneity, were they somehow? Some of them were. Some were, so the Alan Weissman Indigenous Architecture Scholarship, for instance, is specific to Indigenous students. As previously mentioned, the Master's Award for Indigenous Students is for Indigenous students, but is based on proposal for research. A few others were based on just general faculty-wide grades. And then there was also a couple that were related to practicum proposals, which in my case, what I was looking at had for me an Indigenous component, but wasn't necessarily related to that. I want to come back to your uh, master's practicum, uh, the Ecotone Temple, in a minute. But first, I wanted to ask Ralph Stern, what changes did you make to advance the process of reconciliation, as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission put it? In terms of scholarships, one of the very first things that I encountered in the faculty was uh, an Indigenous scholarship award and a committee that had no Indigenous representation on it. That was one of my very first surprises in the faculty where I thought, what is wrong with this picture? Bringing individuals, if, if there were not individuals within the faculty, and there weren't very many at that time, or there weren't very many who were self-identifying as Indigenous at the time, then I reached out across the university. I worked very closely in that regard with the executive lead on Indigenous achievement, uh, who was at that time, that position has evolved over the past decade as well, and is now very formally a the position of a vice president. But at the time, it was uh, an executive lead, and I worked very closely with her in terms of university goals and how university goals could be incorporated within the faculty. Created an Indigenous lecture series as part of the Dean's lecture series and brought in speakers from a, a number of different locations, not just Canadian, though I did bring in Canadians. I brought in Canadian practitioners and Canadian scholars, but also from the United States. And then Marcy and I worked very hard to establish the Interdisciplinary Indigenous Design Studio, in part for this very reason. How do you break across disciplinary boundaries? How do you collaborate in a way that begins to underscore the necessity of, of a holistic worldview? And in that regard, we worked very closely with the University of New Mexico and then with Navajo Nation. Marcy, what did you do with the Navajo Nation in New Mexico? We did a the design studio and we brought the students down to New Mexico, and we worked with a student group from Landscape Architecture at University of New Mexico, and we worked with the Indigenous group within the university at UNM, and went to the town Navajo and met with leaders in the town and worked with Prestine, who who was at a school there, with very young kids. We did a little workshop with the kids, 
and we also did a workshop with members of Navajo, the town, and students then, students from University of New Mexico and U of M students actually slept out on the rocks in Navajo overnight on Prestine's mother's property. It was a very, very important evening for them to just have that experience in that place. Then both of the student groups, the UNM and U of M students, went back to their studios and created designs. And those designs, they were recorded. And Ralph brought them back to Navajo to present to the community groups. We tried to have the complete circle of, they offered something to us. They were very kind and open to us. And we wanted to be sure to give something back to them. And when I say them, I I mean the whole community because it was an incredible experience and one that clearly changed many of the students. I I saw one of the students from that studio in um, Berkeley just before COVID hit, and he was still talking about his experience at Navajo and that studio. And it was a very life-changing experience for the students. And I'd say due to the generosity of the people of Navajo. What was the makeup of the student group that went to the Navajo Nation, Indigenous and non-Indigenous? We had two Métis students, one student from Nigeria. It was mixed, but there were two Métis students, one who is, is highly involved in the Indigenous student group now in the faculty, Naomi. That is a very active group. I was looking at the list of activities that they have going on, and it's a couple of tightly <laughs> printed pages long. Ralph Stern, is that engagement by the part of that students association and the attraction of indigenous students to the faculty a result of the declaration by the university about caring deeply about indigenous values that question is best placed to the group itself right but clearly the university's commitment seems to have let's say raised a sense of self-awareness. I mean, Evan, you can speak to this as well, right? And a sense of support that really wasn't there when I first arrived in Manitoba. It was one of my big discoveries, I guess, and, and kind of shocks in many ways. I'm not a Canadian, I'm an American, and Canada is generally understood as being the good guy version of America, you know? And so whatever America does poorly in terms of maybe human rights issues or social issues, Canada does really well. And I was so surprised when I came here uh, because of clearly the attitude, in many ways, the official governmental attitude towards the indigenous peoples of Canada. I had not expected that. And I hadn't expected it to be an issue when I arrived here. And when I came here very quickly, hugely eye-opening experience to me. How could this be? Friendly Canada, friendly Manitoba, and yet at the same time, you know, things that I was reading in the paper, things that I was hearing, general attitudes. When I came, there wasn't really a very, perhaps, openness about indigeneity within the faculty. Our official statistics, we had very low enrollment of Indigenous students and a lower yet again rate of self-declared Indigenous students. And I think that has all changed profoundly. Evan has spoken to that. And I think that has to do with the overall university policy. Can I just jump in and say that even when I was chair of the environmental design program, the number of students who started to declare uh, to be Métis or Indigenous really 
increased. There were many students before that who wouldn't declare. In some respects, it's quite frustrating because there are things that we could have done to assist these students in different ways. But there truly has been a sea change shift in the number of students who very proudly and quite rightly declare. So it's been a huge change. Evan, how soon did you declare your Métis identity? I did when, I believe, in my first degree. But to what Marcy was saying, even among Métis people, it's much more common now to self-declare. And as Ralph was also saying, a matter of knowing that resources are there that can be accessed, I think there's still a certain stigma for people maybe not wanting to access resources that are sort of tagged for a specific ethnicity. But to the earlier question about how I came to understand my indigenous identity through the design faculty, a huge part of that was honestly writing scholarship proposals for Indigenous-specific scholarships. It's a thing that you have to think about. The resources are there for initiatives for Indigenous people. And that, I think, does have a positive effect of encouraging people to have a reason and incentive to think about it and engage with that. Evan just mentioned the issue of things targeted at Indigenous people. Was there any kind of pushback from non-Indigenous students who were saying, why aren't I privileged to get these kinds of opportunities? Marcy, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I'm shaking my head because I can happily say no, none that I know about. Almost quite the opposite in that I think a lot of non-Indigenous students are really happy and interested to be able to, I'll just say, talk to Métis or Indigenous people. It becomes, I think, a much more supportive environment. I haven't seen any indication of why not me and why them. But the students are very supportive and they're developing more of an understanding of of what's happened in Canadian history. And um, none of them are very pleased with it. Evan, you said you've been involved with the faculty for almost 10 years. When you look back over the course of that decade, what changes do you see in terms of the attunement of the faculty to Indigenous principles, Indigenous identity, Indigenous practices? I think one thing is, just as Marcy said, in terms of the students, when I started when I was doing studios and taking classes, even mention of Indigenous people, there might have been a few, someone might have used it as a source of inspiration, whereas now it's simply a thing people automatically do. I TA'd the ED2, so the first year design studio last year. Sorry, what's ED2? Oh, environmental design too, so the very first design studio. And uh, students in that, so the very first design studio, were already describing their ideas, their designs, and their intentions in terms of Indigenous design. So I think just in terms of that being a thing that's part of the conversation, I think that's hugely and noticeably changed. Ralph Stern, you talked not just about indigenizing the curriculum, but decolonizing it. And that seems to me to be an important distinction that would relate to both Indigenous and non-Indigenous students. We need to be aware, we non-Indigenous people need to be aware of what we have to do and how we benefited from the inappropriate practices of the past. I think that's that's very true. And part of it has to do with what has happened in the past? How does that resonate through generations? How does trauma resonate through generations? But I do come back to and so much of the Western worldview is based on quantitative metrics markers. Those markers might not be at all applicable to an Indigenous worldview. Part of this is a question ultimately to the profession as well, the, which is, you know, architecture is a 
disciplinary profession, right? You have to go through many different hoops to become an architect and to be able to call yourself an architect. And are all of the criteria that are now mapped out as being, let's say, the boxes that need to be checked off, are those actually the correct boxes or do those boxes need to be uh, reconsidered? Part of that has to do also with, and this is a more complex question, and this is one that Marcy and I encountered with our interdisciplinary indigenous design studio, not only was the interdisciplinarity of it, and there were colleagues that objected to the interdisciplinarity of it, also the fact that we were working with an indigenous nation, because it is Navajo nation, in the United States. And, you know, one of the questions was, well, why are you working in the United States, why aren't you working in Canada? And my response to that was, well, I think the whole Canada-US thing is not an indigenous idea, is it? There are so many different layers, I suppose, that colonizers, if one will, if one wants to use that term, have completely internalized. It's hard to be aware of this. For a Canadian, it's completely natural. And for most Canadian indigenous peoples, I suppose it may also be completely natural to distinguish between Canada and the United States. But that's the colonial construct, right? And the Americas as an indigenous environment, as a pre-contact environment, worked completely differently. There was trade, there was now cross-border trade, right? There was trade up and down, you know, from Central America in, into the United States and northwards into Canada. These were flowing groups. Even the map of North America, which is so inscribed in our, let's say, in our whole being, is a completely different map. And one has to be aware of that different map. One has to be aware of the different languages. One has to be aware of the different modes of representation. One has to be ultimately aware of the different modes of how knowledge is accrued and how knowledge is disseminated and how knowledge is passed on from generation to generation. And those are not necessarily Western constructs at all. Hearing Professor Stern talk, it makes me wonder if there's a great deal of information there that you might not have been exposed to as a younger person. In what way were you changed by the indigenous focus that was going on uh, when you were studying there? As Ralph was saying, in terms of decolonizing, in particular in the later years, in terms of studio work. And this process for me sort of started with the studio I did with Marcy, the first one I did when I came back from my master's degree that was located in northern Manitoba. And so that was when, in terms of studying the landscape, in terms of doing research, in terms of working out the design and because it's very hard to get a lot of information about Northern Manitoba, whether it's Indigenous people, whether it's mapping, there's just not, not a lot of information. I think that when you're looking for that information and you realize just the lack of it, you realize the degree to which the information as a designer you rely on, it's a colonial construct. And so you have to start to wonder, how do I understand information? How do I create more information? You know, how do I create a map that isn't a map? So I think that in the nature of design studios, there is that space for creative play, for a kind of genesis of that type of knowledge. I need to talk to you a little bit, though, about your ecotone temple. It's really quite a fascinating thing that you did for your master's degree. What's the ecotone temple? Ecotone temple is uh, essentially a land art installation, as I would describe it, that I made out of my cabin near Riding Mountain. It's a series of forest rooms and paths and sculptural installations that over the years I've made by 
meditatively rearranging and engaging with the material of the forest. So very much a continual living experience for me, but also as the years have gone on, a venue that can be used to learn from the landscape, not in a trite way, but to have a conversation that is a testing of whether things work. In terms of design work, in terms of kind of indigenous worldview, for me, indigenous design is always practicing things that are in accord with your understanding of a proper balance. And so essentially, it's the physical manifestation of seeking an aesthetic balance, in this case, in a forest. But, but looking at the materials that you used, uh, pine cones, burdocks, twine, how did they become elements of the design aesthetic? Essentially, by being there, that the design aesthetic isn't something that's imposed, that the materials themselves are the basis for the design. In terms of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I think the university, when it's defining Indigenous achievement, I think it has resources put towards that. But I think one thing in particular in the Faculty of Architecture, Indigenous achievement as the university is understanding it to me isn't necessarily the same as Indigenous design. And as Ralph alluded to, I think that how we understand architecture, how we understand the motivation and the purpose of architecture in a Western sense is not automatically the same as an Indigenous sense. And so I think that if we think of how we create something, why we create something, much as in Western architecture, I think Indigenous design comes down to materials, but creating a proper engagement with those materials. I was struck by the serenity of what you created in those forest rooms. It was kind of chilling and exhilarating at the same time. As I looked at the photos, I thought the thinking that's going on in the mind that created this was integrated with the landscape itself. I mean, what was your process in this? Essentially a slow walking around of the site. So the design itself, the final form, is not done. It's something that is a continual engagement. The initial moves that flow from it are from being in the site, from engaging with the site, reaching out, touching, feeling, seeing what action is taken that is proper in relation to that, and then amplifying that, continuing that. You can almost think of it as a carving of a piece of antler where there's a rocking of it, there's a petting of it, there's a very physical engagement with the process. And that is the process. Did that process result in a deeper connection to your own Indigenous identity? Absolutely. I would say for me as an ongoing project, that was the thing that really allowed me to explore that. One reason that I did go back, I started this um, before my master's degree, in between my bachelor and master's degree. And one reason that I did go back for my master's degree was to be able to explore this process and be able to define it more clearly and understand it more clearly. You are a contributor too to this gorgeous book called Voices of the Land, Indigenous Design and Planning on the Prairies. What did you contribute to that? To that, I contributed a description of the project, so Ecotone Temple. As it relates to the practicum, an aspect of it beyond the engagement of the site is essentially the creation of a narrative performative dance that's informed by the site that can then be used when off the site can be used as a tool of reference. Some of the images that I contribute to that were related to that, to a performance done there. A performance? What do you mean by that? In terms of the engagement of the site, the walking through it, over time, you build up a mental map, an understanding, an intuitive flowing through the site. 
Related to my practicum, I was doing research on light sculptures. And so for years, I've been interested in uh, flow arts, which are essentially staffs or balls or LED lights that you manipulate with your body. The performance was with one of these LED lights, a staff, so capturing long exposure images of the movement through the site. Marcy, what was your teaching relationship with Evan? I, I get the sense that you and he spent a fair bit of time together. Yeah, <laughs> I honestly can't remember the first studio that we did together. You were in Emergent Futures? Yeah, it was the East Exchange studio. And philosophy, um, ethics and aesthetics. Um, you were a great student there. We kept in touch over the time that you were away, you know, sort of distantly. We've always just had a very good rapport. And as you've discovered, Terry, um, Evan has an extraordinarily rich creative mind. And it's always a pleasure talking with him. And the work that he did in the regional studio, which was Northern Manitoba, was, I thought, very rich. And of course, his practicum work was, um, well, you've seen it. It's fantastic. Ralph Stern, I have a quote here from you, I think, when you were talking about, again, Indigenous communities, and you said, many of the issues facing Indigenous communities today are environmental in nature. They are issues impacting watersheds, food sheds, contamination and reclamation, as well as designing healthy environments for future generations. What are you referring to with that? One way of understanding colonization in North America is that it is about land, right? It's about whose land is it? Who has it? Who controls it? The primary impulse of colonizers is to extract wealth from that land. That's not necessarily an indigenous perspective, right? An indigenous perspective is more to live with the land and not to extract wealth from the land. And so an indigenous perspective is that the land is something living and uh, Western perspective is much more that the land is objectified and is something that can be taken from. And that means whatever produces wealth. And, you know, in areas where there's a great amount of water, water produces wealth. Historically, through perhaps fishing and fishing industries, uh, we see a lot of fights around fishing. East Coast Canada, West Coast United States a lot of issues around salmon and salmon catches, a lot of issues around what happens if rivers are dammed. In Manitoba, obviously a lot of issues around what happens if rivers are dammed and indigenous communities are flooded out. We see a lot of very specific histories of then mining intersecting watersheds and pushing pollutants into river systems or simply you know, let's say, leaving unsafe conditions open within Indigenous communities or within Indigenous reserves, or in the example of Navajo Nation, the, the history of uranium mining of, you know, the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s is an incredibly pernicious history, where tailings are left, where uranium mines are open, who's, who is impacted by uranium-laced dust you can just go down the list, right? These, these are the issues, food scarcity, food resources, huge issues around public health in terms of changing from a corn-based diet to a wheat-based diet in, in the United States, for example, of the introduction of junk food and the pervasiveness of junk food. And then of course, 
all of the attendant problems of having junk food as being a basis of your diet instead of fruits and vegetables, leading to obesity, leading to diabetes, uh, leading to then all of the consequences of diabetes. It's just a whole long series of issues which can bring us up to the current day and COVID and how COVID has impacted indigenous communities everywhere, right? Uh, Terrible stories coming out of the Amazon basin now because of the the federal policies of the government of Brazil of, you know, what's COVID? It's just, it's a minor thing. You know, we're running up through Colombia, through Peru, running up through Central America, the Guatemalan communities that are being devastated by COVID, the Mexican communities that are being devastated by COVID. Over and over and over again, you know, the indigenous communities are usually among the communities who are hard, that are hardest hit. And of course, we see that in Canada as well. Navajo Nation was hit so hard with COVID and, yeah, as you say, Canada. Marcy, tell us a bit about the student who did work at Lake St. Martin in north central Manitoba, where flooding was a big issue. That student was Janelle Harper, and she was very interested in understanding how the decisions were made that essentially said, I'm simplifying things, that it was okay to flood Lake St. Martin. She, of course, did a lot of research to understand how long people from Lake St. Martin were in Winnipeg or displaced also in Brandon, and how many children were born not on the land that their families and parents were living on, but in the city. And so she was trying to understand all of those disconnections And she was trying to understand all of the policies and regulations in, of course, both the federal and provincial governments that led to all of this happening and what was happening to try to remediate the situation and the frustrations with many groups in how things were moving so slowly or how some decisions would happen so quickly without Indigenous input into it. So she was trying to untangle the absolute mess that Lake St. Martin has been in Manitoba in trying to understand how these issues impact landscape architecture and, of course, the work of landscape architects. Evan, how do you stay serene in the face of all of this? We look at local circumstances, whether it's Shoal Lake 40 not having a proper road to get into the community, or whether it's the mercury contamination from the paper mill in Dryden for White Dog and Grassy Narrows. Your work has a degree of serenity and beauty, but I don't see in it a fury and an activism in which you look at it and say, this is wrong, I need to fix it. How do you balance that? I think it's a tricky question and it varies for a lot of people. You know, I was in a studio Marcy did where we went along the path of the aqueduct to Shoal Lake 40. You know, it was in Marcy's studio about Northern Manitoba that was able to really look at, you know, the wrong of the hydro developments there. I know for myself in thinking about Indigenous design and Indigenous identity, there's a nonlinear aspect to it, which I think perhaps for it to be the fullest of what it can be precludes dwelling on certain historical things. I also think that if you want to produce something beautiful, something in balance, in harmony, there's a time and a place to be angry, but I don't think that anger is something that is what Indigenous design is offering. I can also say for myself, I got angry about it when I was young. Ralph, you wanted to interject. Yeah, I I just wanted to make the comment about Janelle. 
because you had asked uh, Marcy earlier what impact did the interdisciplinary indigenous design studio have on the students that participated. And Janelle was one of the participants in that studio. So perhaps that was for her. And, and I mean, Marcy can speak more specifically to her. Uh, but perhaps it was an inroad for her into Indigenous issues. That... Thinking about truth and reconciliation, I reflect on what Marie Sinclair has been saying over and over and over again, that we really need to listen to each other and talk to each other. And so I think that my understanding of what I can do to indigenize the curriculum, though I do hate that phrase, is really to try to get students to open themselves to understand the complexity of all of the wrongs that have been done by the settler community and that we are all part of that settler community and that we need to be open to listen and to talk to each other. So, you know, I think Murray Sinclair's advice is so invaluable and that my role as an educator in the Faculty of Architecture is really to try to open as many students as I can to listen and to want to learn and to try to let their curiosities go to places that they, they might not have initially thought they would. I think that's such an important part of the TRC. One is maybe just to touch base on, on the studio that we did with Navajo Nation. And that interestingly enough, even though we did that a number of years ago, that work has come back now that it has been made clear to me by the woman that we were working with there, Pristine Gardenas, that, um, that the, the student work that came out of that studio had a profound impact on the community and that they are returning it to it again. And that she has just recently within the past few weeks asked me if that work can be posted on their social media page because they are gearing up. They've received some federal funding now to address some of the issues that were raised at the time in conjunction with the studio and that they want to proceed with that. So the work with Navajo Nation may well proceed. I've, I've been talking to her very specifically about how we might move that forward in the coming year. The other thing I wanted to say is in terms of working with other indigenous communities that have been working a lot in for the past couple of years in Guatemala. And with uh, Guatemala has a very specific history of not just cultural genocide, but literal genocide and very recently. And addressing issues in, in, in Guatemala City uh, with regard to Mayan heritage, Mayan history, Mayan identity, and that that work is also uh, proceeding. Of course, one of the more pernicious entities in, in Guatemala are, once again, mining concerns. Uh, some of those are also Canadian owned. So it's not just within Canada. Evan, now that you've graduated, what are you going to do next? I just recently founded a firm, Atelier 617. I began being able to do some landscaping. I know Marcy hates that term. Yes. Not technically a landscape architect yet, but also to be able to have a venue to do more holistic artistic explorations. So just focusing more on figuring out what Indigenous design is and how to practice it. This has been a really invigorating conversation. Is there anything that I missed? Is there something that, that you'd like to say as we conclude? Thank you. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you all so much for your time today. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you for having Thanks us. Thanks for the opportunity. Our guests today on Prairie Design Lab were Evan Tremblay, a new Master of Landscape Architecture graduate, Marcella Eaton, an associate professor in the Faculty of Landscape Architecture, and Ralph Stern, former dean of the Faculty of Architecture, all from the University of Manitoba. 
I'm Terry McLeod, your writer, producer, and host. For more information, visit our website at prairiedesignlab.com. You can listen to us on Spotify and Apple and Google Podcasts. If you like us, please subscribe. You can hear us on the radio on UMFM at 101.5 FM on Wednesday mornings at 1130. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Thank you.